So to that end, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide my lips as we dive into your word, that I might speak faithfully your truths to all those who are with us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Revelation. If you're just joining us uh, either here or online for the first time, we've been walking through uh, the first part of the book of Revelation in this series. Uh, We're going to continue on uh, in the months ahead. And so today we come to Revelation 5. We'll be looking at the whole chapter, uh, verses 1 to 14. So you can turn there in your Bibles. We'll read that shortly. Uh, Perhaps some of you have visited the Greater Vancouver Zoo. Uh, It's located in Alder Grove. It was originally opened in 1970 under the name the Vancouver Game Farm. Uh, Interestingly, I didn't know this till this week, the very first animal at the Vancouver Game Farm, as it was called at that point, was a llama named Dennis. (laughs) I didn't know that. Uh, But I did over the years, I have over the years, visited the game farm, now the Greater Vancouver Zoo, numerous times. And I want to share a story. When I was in my early 20s, I think I was probably still uh, at Columbia Bible College, finishing up my uh, my undergraduate degree there. And I was working part-time in a local church in Abbotsford as a youth pastor. And so uh, one particular summer night, I took the youth group to the zoo. Now, I don't know about you, but I love animals. I love seeing wildlife. I mean, in the wild, even in the zoo, it can be cool to see these amazing creatures that God has made. Uh, But if you're like me, it's far more interesting to see them actually up and around and doing something, right? Like to go, go, oh, there's there's a tiger behind that grass laying there having a nap. Kind of boring. And so I remember on this particular night with the youth, we were there and we happened to be in front of the lion enclosure. The lion enclosure at the, uh, at the zoo in, in Aldergrove, uh, it, was, it was sort of two chain-link fences, probably about 24 inches apart, really high, but uh, chain-link fences, and we were pretty close on the outside of that. There was likely a railing there, um, as I recall, but, but this lion was just laying there, not too far inside the enclosure, and it was, it was kind of boring, like wanted to see this lion get up and do something, and so... Um, Uh, In my defense, before I tell you what I did, I was in my early 20s, and apparently I've learned over the last couple years that uh, the prefrontal part of your brain is not fully developed till around the age 25, and apparently that part of your brain is involved in impulse control. So I'm standing in front of the lion enclosure with the youth group, and the lion is just laying there lazily resting, doing nothing particularly interesting, and, and I wanted to see something and so, without thinking, evidently, I, uh, I, I reached over the, 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 the railing, and I smashed the fence, and at the same time let out a huge yell. And what happened in the seconds after that, this lion leapt to its feet and let out, looking at me right away, probably two feet away, an enormous roar. I have had a couple experiences in my life where my brain has released some chemical, I don't know what it is, but you just feel it wash over your body, so your knees get weak. And it was one of those moments for me where I very sheepishly, in front of my whole youth group, were looking at me. I was just this, this, I don't know, fear, but whatever it was, just wash over me in, in the face of this mighty, enormous, roaring lion just feet away was an overwhelming experience, an overwhelming moment. 
This morning, as we move deeper into the Revelation, we will encounter this morning another lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, an encounter that is sure to overwhelm us this morning. It will overwhelm us differently than my experience, but nonetheless, it will be overwhelming. Now, before we look at our text, I want to spend a few minutes reminding you of a number of things. I want to remind you of some of the things that are true about the book of Revelation, so that as we return to the book this morning, we can bear these things in mind. And then I want to remind you of the things we talked about last week as we looked at chapter 4, because chapter 4 and 5 stand together as part of the same vision. So first, about the book. The title of this book the revelation, it literally means unveiling, the, the revelation. Uh, it is the title of the book. Within these pages, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true. What we discover, what this book emphatically declares to us is that there is more going on than we see with our physical eyes. Daryl Johnson writes this, The foundational conviction of the book is that things are not as they seem, or more exactly, things are not only as they seem. Second, an important reminder is that this book is, is the revelation of Jesus. That is, it is a revelation, an unveiling uh, that comes from Jesus, it's of Jesus, but it is also of Jesus, as in about Jesus. Within these pages, we encounter Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one proclaimed through the pages of the Scripture. Third, it's important that we realize the purpose of Revelation, uh, as Eugene Peterson puts it. He, he writes, this is a longer quote, but I want to read it to you. I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that old truth is freshly perceived. He takes truth that has been eroded to... Uh, has, takes truth that has been eroded to platitude by careless usage and sets it in motion before us as an animated and impassioned dance of ideas. As we come to the Revelation, this is not new information about Jesus or a life of discipleship, but it is a vision of Jesus and a life of discipleship that informs our imaginations and equips us to live bold lives of faith in Christ and ignites a fire in our soul. Again, Peterson says, a few paragraphs into the Revelation, the adrenaline starts rushing through the arteries of my faith, and I'm on my feet, alive, tingling. It is almost impossible to read the Revelation and not have my imagination aroused. Now, using our imagination is not about pretending. It's not thinking about things that aren't really real. It's actually learning to see what is real, but that what we cannot see with our physical eyes. Fourth and last thing I want to remind you about the book as a whole is that the Revelation was written to real Christians living in the Roman province of Asia near the end of the first century, probably around the year 96 AD. A time in history when 
Domitian was the emperor, a brutal tyrant, and a time in history when there was a great crisis that was coming to the church. There was great suffering that was about to be unleashed and to wash over them. Now, let's remember those things as we turn to our chapter in a moment, chapter 5. But let me remind you quickly about chapter 4. Chapter 4 and 5 stand together, one vision. Chapter 4 began with John uh, looking and seeing an open door in heaven. A door standing open, and he hears a voice, the same voice that John heard in chapter 1, when he heard a loud voice behind him on the Lord's day, he was worshiping, he heard a loud voice behind him, like a trumpet, and he turned to see the voice, and he there encountered the exalted and glorified Jesus. That same voice now speaks to him, he sees this door, and the voice of Christ says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately, John is swept up to this door. And so for all of chapter 4, John is standing at this door, this open door into heaven, and he is watching. And in chapter 4, what John sees, the first thing he sees, he sees a throne. And there is one seated on the throne. John is looking into the throne room of heaven. And he attempts to describe what he sees. He describes the one sitting on the throne with, with the language of precious stones, brilliant, gleaming the, the glory of God radiating from his presence. He describes the power and the awesome majesty of God with thunder and lightning coming from the throne. The one seated on the throne is Yahweh, the Almighty God, the creator of all things. And around the throne, he sees 24 elders on 24 other thrones dressed in white. He sees closer to the throne four living creatures. I contended last week that the 24 elders represent the people of God. Uh, 12 plus 12 equals 24. 12 representing the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. 12 representing the apostles in the New Testament. 12 plus 12, the whole people of God represented by the elders around the throne, worshiping. Uh, Immediately around God, the four living creatures represent all animate creation. And I would suggest... After further reflection, still they represent that, but they are some kind of angelic beings that lead this process or this this worship around the throne. The vision up to this point through chapter 4 communicates to us, uh, reveals the transcendence of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the awesome majesty of God. And chapter 4 concludes with the 24 elders and the four living creatures all around the throne Worshipping before the throne, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So it's immediately on the heels of that that we come to chapter 5 where that vision, that same vision, continues. I'll pick it up from verse 1 and read through to the end of the chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. I want to walk through this text together this morning and ask three questions with you. Why does John weep? Who does John see? And how should we respond? Why does John weep? Who does John see? And how should we respond? Our first question, why does John weep? The answer is found in the first four verses of the text. But just before we turn to them, let me me, uh, suggest to you uh, an approach to this text that will be helpful as we seek to discern what God is saying through this part of his word. It will be helpful for us to think about as we read this, as we walk through this, to imagine ourselves looking at an unfolding drama with different scenes, if you will. The first scene was chapter 4. An open door to heaven. John swept up to that door. He looks in and he beholds the throne room of heaven. He beholds God Almighty, the creator of all things, on a throne in all his glory and awesome power. Here we come to scene 2. Chapter 5, one that builds on all that we observed in chapter 4. The setting has been established. John is at this open door. He is is looking into the throne room of heaven. And now we continue to watch what happens to see what happens next. And our text begins saying, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John standing at the door looking into the throne room of heaven continues to look. And he notices something that likely was already present in chapter 4. In the hand of the one who sits on the throne that is above every other throne, he sees a scroll. 
Now, it is really clear in the opening four verses of chapter 5 that that scroll is a central element in the vision, in the drama, as it continues to unfold. But what are we to make of this scroll? How are we to understand it? Well, let's take a look at a few things that are said about the scroll. First, it is said to have writing on both sides, on the inside and the outside. Now, that's a little bit unusual, but not completely unheard of. Typically, uh, most of the writing would be on the inside of a scroll. On the outside, when you roll it up, you might, they, they might have, in the ancient days, they might have written the, maybe the author's name, the title of the scroll, perhaps a little blurb, much like we have on the back of books, but the writing, generally speaking, would be on the inside of the scroll. Now, that said, with a scroll, at least in theory, there is as much room on the outside of it to write as there is on the inside of it, right? We, we, we get that. Uh, it wasn't normally done. You normally wrote on just the inside, and that was for a very simple reason. Most scrolls, not all of them, but most were made out of papyrus. Papyrus was something, uh, it pictures celery or rhubarb with these strings, and you could nick it and peel it off, and you would do that, and you would kind of paste uh, these strips of papyrus together with this organic kind of paste, and that would, you would create this long scroll. Generally, scrolls were about 33 or 34 feet long. You take two sticks at the end and twiddle it together, and there's your scroll. But because of the papyrus, uh, it ran horizontally. So uh, when you're writing Greek or you're writing Hebrew, which were written horizontally, you would write in line with the, with the, the, the strings, if you will, in the papyrus. To write on the back, you'd be going against those, and it just wasn't nearly uh, as pleasant way to write. I don't know if you, you understand that at all. I mean, uh, different, but similar. I, I hate writing on a piece of paper on a hard table or a counter. I love having you know, a stack of paper or a desk blotter just to soften that. It, it was not nearly as nice to write on, a, on the outside of a papyrus scroll because of the mere makeup, makeup of it. Now, in theory, as I said, you could write on both sides. There was, there was enough, there was equal room on the outside as there was the inside. It just was not typically done. Uh, two reasons why you might write on both sides. Reason number one, you, you were poor and you didn't have money for a second scroll. Scrolls were expensive. You couldn't just run to Staples around the corner in Jerusalem or Nazareth. So you might just write on it because you didn't have the resources to uh, get another uh, another scroll. Reason number two was that there was a, a fullness, if you will, to what you wanted to say, and you didn't want to risk it, it being taken, uh, coming apart. You wanted to hold it together. So, for example, we finished walking through the Gospel of Luke in January. Luke and the book of Acts are, are part one and part two. It is, it is essentially one work, but it came to us on two scrolls. Not the front and the back, they just wrote on one side. And, and why is it two, two books? Because the book of Acts takes about 32 feet, and the book of Acts takes about 32 feet, and so two scrolls. But you would combine it if you were really, really concerned about holding those together, that there was a, a, a message that it was vital to keep it all whole, complete. Now, when certain important documents were written, you would write it out on the scroll, you'd twiddle the, 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 the sticks together, and then you'd wrap another strip of papyrus around it and tie a string or use wax to seal it. A blob of wax, sometimes with a, a signet ring. And the more important the document, the more seals you would put on it. And so this scroll that 
is in the right hand of the one who's sitting on the throne, has writing on both sides, and it is sealed with seven seals. That is seven blobs of wax, if you will. It is sealed shut. Seven is, of course, a symbolic number in the Revelation. So not only is it seven, seven seals, but it is symbolically, it is a symbol pointing to the, the completeness of this scroll being sealed shut. The perfection of being sealed up. When Vespasian, an emperor of Rome, uh, wrote his will, his will was sealed with seven seals. And the legal practice of the day was that there, though there might be other copies that people could consult before he died, uh, even after he died, until the original will that was sealed in his case with seven seals was brought out and those seals were broken by the appropriate official, and then his will could be enforced, probate, go to probate as we would call it, and it would be enacted. But it's not until that will, the seals were broken and the, the, the will was opened up that it would be uh, fulfilled, that it would be enacted. So we know this. We know that this scroll sits in God's right hand. We know that it has writing on both sides, so there is a fullness, a completeness to the contents, the message that are contained within it. And we know that it is perfectly sealed. It is sealed with seven seals and only the right person, someone with the authority to open it, can break the seals and open the scroll. Now, we can wonder, is there, is there more that we can know? Like, what are the contents of the scroll? Eugene Peterson writes this, scroll to a first century Christian would mean scripture. Or put another way, it would be the words of God. This is a message from God. Uh, can we know more? Well, I will suggest that as we move forward into chapter 6 next week, what will become clear is that this scroll contains the, the completeness of God's plan, is how Daryl Johnson puts it. He writes, the scroll contains God's plan for rectifying what is wrong and establishing his gracious rule in the world. A plan which by necessity involves judging all that is wrong and destroying all that is in the way. The scroll contains God's plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now that is the symbolism of John's, of the day when John is writing this. Here is a scroll in the hand of the one who sits on the throne that is above every other throne. It contains God's words, his, his words about judgment and blessing, the fullness of God's plan for the history of the world, the, the course of history, the destiny of the world. Now what will bring that history, that destiny, that plan, what will bring God's purposes to completion. Well, in the drama of the vision, what needs to happen is someone needs to come and break the seals and open the scroll. That will disclose God's plan. That will unfold God's purposes of judgment and blessing. That is how this scene is unfolding. And at this point, we know that there's a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals, and a mighty angel, John sees a mighty angel who, who calls out throughout the entire universe, throughout heaven and earth, cries out in a mighty voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who can come and break these seals and open the scroll? Who can come so that God's purposes can come to fruition? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who can come and do this? It is important for us to remember the setting 
of chapter 4. God who is on the throne. God who radiates His glory, His majesty. God who sits on the throne from which thunder and lightning are, are coming. God who is, is powerful and awesome and mighty, surrounded by four living creatures, these angelic beings that represent all of animate creation, surrounded by 24 elders on other 24 other thrones who represent the whole people of God. Indescribable glory, awesome power, the transcendence of almighty God. Not just anyone can wander up to God and take the scroll and break the seals. It is an awesome thing to be able to approach the living God and to take the scroll and to break the seals and unfold his plans. And that is why we encounter tears. That is why John weeps. Because no one is found in all of heaven and all of earth who who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Listen, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. No one. No one is worthy. No human being, no angelic being. There's no one who can even get close to peek at the scroll. No one worthy to break the, scroll, the, the seals and open it up. No one worthy to bring God's plans to fruition. So John weeps. He weeps and he weeps. Not because his curiosity is stifled. Man, I'd really like to know what's in there. No, but because unless someone breaks the seals and opens the scroll, God's purposes will not be fulfilled. God's purposes for judging evil and blessing his people, God's purposes in redemption will not come to fruition. And that means that all that the church right now is going through. All of the suffering, the persecution, they're, they're bearing witness. It's all in vain. It, it means that suddenly the universe doesn't make sense. See, part of living a life of Christian faith in a world that is so full of injustice and evil is the belief the, the message of Scripture that God is in the process of setting all things right. That injustice will be judged, that sin will be judged, that evil will be vanquished. But no one is worthy to break the seals and bring God's purposes to completion. And so John weeps. He weeps. The scene doesn't end there. Question number two, who does John see? It's at this point as John is weeping that one of the 24 elders speaks to John and says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He has triumphed. The, the, the word translated triumph there, the Greek verb is the verb nikao, from which we get Nike. Nike is about victory, conquering. The, the, lamb, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has, has conquered. This is holy war language. There has been a struggle, there has been a battle, and the lion of Judah has conquered. He has been victorious, he has overcome. Now this language of the lion of the tribe of Judah 
and the root of Jesse is language that comes from the Old Testament. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he blesses his son Judah, the fourth oldest. Okay, the one from whom you're not going to expect much. He's, he's not the eldest. He's not going to be the, the patriarch of the family. He's the, the fourth born. And yet he is called the lion, tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah will come from him. This messianic figure foretold already back in Genesis. The, the root of Jesse is language that we, we encounter in the book of Isaiah. We read this in Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. Nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This language, the, the line of the tribe of Judah, the, the stump of Jesse, this is language that has, it, it points to a messianic king, this, this one who will come and bring victory, this one who will come and conquer The elder says, John, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the stump of Jesse, the one who will come and bring victory, the one who will conquer. He is worthy. He is able to open the seals, break the seals and open the scroll. And so in this moment, I want you just to picture this drama unfolding because this is one of the most remarkable moments in all of Scripture. John, who has seen this drama unfolding before him, John, who has been weeping and weeping because there is no one worthy. The elder says, don't weep. There's one who's worthy. There's one who's conquered, the Lion of Judah. And so John looks up, and what does he see? Who does he see? You, you would expect that he would see a lion, a mighty, powerful, victorious lion, a lion like I encountered that day in Alder Grove. This huge, powerful, mighty beast, this victorious conqueror. John lifts his eyes and he looks and he sees a lamb, a lamb that was slain. Verse 6 Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne. He sees Jesus. He sees the exalted Christ, the, the one that he followed through Palestine for three years, about 60 years earlier. He sees Jesus. He sees a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. You know, when... When nations want an animal to symbolically represent them, a symbol of power and authority, they don't typically think of something like a lamb. Russia, there's the bear. Britain, the lion. France, the tiger. The United States, a mighty eagle. Canada, Beaver. Someone has written, it is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use as its symbol of might. Not the lion for which John was looking, but rather a helpless lamb and one that was slain. 
Whoever wrote that almost got it right. Not the lion, but rather a lamb, they say. That's not quite right. It's the lion that is a lamb. The lion of Judah is a lamb, a lamb that was slaughtered, a lamb that suffered in our place. In John's theology, and remember John who writes the Revelation, stands behind John's gospel. And if we read John's gospel, we will see clearly that that Christ's moment of glory, Christ's exaltation happens when he is lifted up on the cross. The cross is the supreme moment in John's gospel of the exaltation of Christ, of his glory, of his majesty, is on the cross as he willingly lays down his life for us, lays down his life for the sins of the world. The cross is the high moment of triumph. Jesus dies in our place. Jesus dies for his creation. Jesus dies for our redemption that we might live. In John's gospel, as Jesus is on the cross, his last words are, it is finished. And that's not simply the suffering's finished, my life is finished. No, the, the battle is finished. That is a moment of triumph. The lamb is victorious. The lion of Judah is the lamb that suffered and died. For any of you who are with us this morning who've never put your faith in Jesus, Christianity stands apart from any other faith, any other, any other way of thinking about life. As Christianity declares the truth that there is a personal God who has created all things, a God who is on the throne that is above every other throne, and that God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, that the Son came out of love for us, to redeem us, to rescue us, to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, went to a cross and suffered in my place, in your place, suffered death, sacrificed himself, bearing what we deserve so that we, through faith, might be washed and cleansed and made alive in him. That is good news. That is the gospel. That is the heart of Christianity. And if you have never trusted Jesus, I encourage you even today to do so. To come to Him and say, Jesus, I need Your love. I need Your grace. I can't clean myself up. I can't figure this out. I repent. Turn from your sin and commit yourself to Christ who came out of love for you to redeem you, to rescue you, who suffered in your place, who achieved victory over sin and death. And Satan on the cross. Victory. Triumph. On the cross. If we look carefully at some of the language here in chapter 5, you'll notice that this lamb who was slain is said to have seven horns, seven eyes. What's that all about? Well, horns... A horn is a symbol of power. Seven is the number of completeness. This lamb who was slain has complete power. Eyes speak to wisdom. This lamb who has sacrificed himself for us is completely wise. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. He writes this, 
Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, this is the scandal of the gospel that in the cross, in this moment of supreme weakness, Christ is manifesting himself to be supremely wise and supremely powerful that he conquers through his death for us. He achieves victory, redemption on the cross through his death. The lamb is worthy. And so we read, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The lamb is worthy. The lamb is worthy to break the seals and unroll the scroll. The lamb is worthy. The last question I wanted to ask with you this morning is how should we respond? At this point... We encounter the four living creatures and the 24 elders. We read that they sing a new song. You are worthy, they sing to the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. A great deal could be said from each of the songs. There's five songs in chapter 4 and 5. I want to limit my comments to just a couple things. First, we need to see that there is a wideness to God's plan of redemption. The plan was never to save only Israel. It was always to reach the world through Israel. God's plan of redemption is broad and wide. People of every tribe and language and people and nation. That remains true today as the church, is, the church exists for God's mission. And that leads us to the second thing I want to draw your attention to is that for those of us who are redeemed, we are redeemed from sin. We are redeemed from the punishment, God's just judgment for our sin. We are redeemed from those things, but we are also redeemed for something. He will make us a nation and priests. What is the role of a priest? A priest is to stand between, to mediate. As those who are redeemed through Christ, we stand before God and we pray on behalf of the world. Lost and dying in the grip of Satan. Tearing itself apart. Seeking meaning and satisfaction in things that are intended to point them to God, the creator of all things. We stand before God and we pray. We, we represent humanity, lost humanity before God. God, have mercy. God, pour out your spirit. God, move in this world. Rescue those around us. And a priest also represents God to those people. We bear witness to those all around us who need Christ, who need the hope that we have encountered in Christ. They need his grace. They need to know his love. They need to know the joy and the confidence and the peace that can be found in faith in Christ alone. And so we bear witness. The word, the word witness in Greek 
The word martus, sorry for this, but martus from which we get the word martyr. Chapter 6, when the fifth seal is broken, we're going to hear from Christian martyrs, those in Christ who lost their lives. That is, as priests in the role that we are called to, live out as those who are redeemed through Christ's death. We are to bear witness, and even to the point of suffering and death. Remember, John is sharing this first. The first readers are those churches throughout the province of Asia under the reign of Domitian, and suffering is coming. Crisis is coming. Pain is coming. This week... A video was brought to my attention. A pastor from Kentucky had a dream. He had a dream in December that seemed to be fulfilled throughout the months of March and May or June with some of the events going on. And he shares another dream that he had about a week ago. And without getting into the particulars, and he seems sincere, and and perhaps what he dreamed is Indeed, God showing something. But in a nutshell, basically, he says that in September and then especially in November, there is a crisis, there is chaos, there is a great upheaval that is coming upon the United States, at least, according to this dream. And I was listening, and then he said the church, he called the church to be prepared, to prepare yourself, brace yourself, Get prepared. And and then at this point, he fleshed it out this way. He said, be prepared. Get food. Get alternative currency, gold and silver. Get lots of guns and ammunition. And he lost me. Church, be prepared. Get guns and ammunition. Really? Really? Do we not follow a crucified Messiah? Is the one who achieved victory not a lamb who was slain? Are we not called to follow in his footsteps? We follow and serve and live for a crucified suffering Messiah, and we are called to bear witness, to suffer, even to be martyred for him. Overcome evil with good. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Rather be wronged. A life of discipleship is a radical life of self-sacrifice for the sake of those around us. Christ, as he was nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. With all due respect to that Christian brother and others who might think like him, I do not believe that the way of discipleship involves guns and ammunition. It involves a cross and perhaps even death. At this point in chapter 5, all heaven breaks loose. Perhaps, perhaps you all missed that idiom, especially if English isn't your first language. When things go bad, we often say all hell breaks loose, but at this moment, all heaven breaks loose. In just this explosion of worship, we read 
Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. When we encounter the majesty, the glory of God the Father, when we encounter Christ, the Lamb who was slain for us, who gave His life, whose, whose moment of triumph and victory came as He bled out. We are moved to join this explosion of worship. Peterson writes this, when persons of faith become aware of who God is and what He does, they sing. The songs are irrepressible. shared with you about my encounter with a lion and this wave of whatever that was washing over me and just the sense of being overwhelmed. Fear. So we encounter Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. As we encounter the one who is worthy to break the seals and unroll the scroll, the one who is worthy to bring to completion God's purposes, his plans of redemption and judgment. Oh, may we experience that same sense of being overwhelmed in the presence of his awesome glory, his mighty power, the lamb who gave himself for us, the lamb who was slain. The Lamb who is worthy. The Lamb who is worthy of all our worship. Amen.